Mitch Denier is a sociologist at Princeton University where he teaches courses ranging from Introduction to Sociology to Bruce Springsteen's America. He is the author of a series of award-winning urban ethnographies such as Slim's Table, a study of working-class African-American men in a Chicago cafeteria, and Sidewalk, which explored the transformation of public space from Jane Jacobs to the Giuliani era. As you know, the winner of the seventh annual Sokolo Book Prize. Give a warm welcome to Mr. Mitch Demir. Thank you very much, Gregory. It's such a great honor to be here tonight and to accept this very special prize. I was born in 1961. I'm 56 years old. And in the years that I was growing up as a um, maybe pre-kindergarten child and then into elementary school, for me, the references to the word ghetto were references in my house and in my segregated Jewish community on Long Island um, to the Nazi ghettos. Now, from one perspective, this is a little bit surprising because right outside in places like Harlem and Brooklyn, the word ghetto was increasingly associated with blacks. But this was also the period, the early 60s, when books that were really the founding texts of the field that we know today as Holocaust history, one of the great achievements of the field of history, were being published. Books like Raoul Hilberg's 1961 study, The Destruction of the European Jews. That was, 19, uh, that was the year I was born, the year before Elie Wiesel published Night. Just a few years later, after the Eichmann trial, Hannah Arendt published Eichmann in Jerusalem. And so it's not surprising that these were the kinds of books that were on the shelves of my parents and my grandparents, and that because the world was really waking up and beginning to understand in real detail what had actually taken place during the Holocaust, that discussions of the Nazi ghettos were not only ongoing in my household, but they were also, they also became, these kinds of discussions about the Holocaust became central to my identity as a reform Jew growing up on Long Island. I mean, when I was bar mitzvahed at the age of 13, one of the requirements for the bar mitzvah was going and reading the Haftar and having a half-hour conversation with Rabbi Saperstein about Elie Wiesel's night. <laughs> now, it's interesting that the Nazi ghettos were really what were on my mind when I thought of ghetto, because actually, for most of Jewish history, um, it was really the ghetto of the early modern era that were central to the understanding of Jews of what ghettos were. It was the ghettos of Prague, the segregated spaces of middle, medieval Frankfurt, as well as, of course, the spaces that gave the, the segregated spaces their name later on, the Venice ghetto, of 1516. And as many of you know, the Venice ghetto was a place that the Jews were put. It was a copper foundry, um, abandoned, disused, known as Il Ghetto, and it was where the Jews were placed when the Palace of the Dodge decided, at the, at the urging of preachers, that the Jewish businessmen and merchants and um, various pawnbrokers and bankers that had 
essentially been enticed to come to Venice needed to be segregated in order to protect this most Catholic city and keep it pure. And so the Jews were put in a ghetto in 1516. But I argue in the book that it really wasn't the Venice ghetto that was the crucial ghetto for the Jews, and it wasn't really the Venice ghetto that was the crucial ghetto for the idea of the ghetto. That ghetto was the Rome ghetto of 1555. You see, the ghetto in 1516 was really a very particular solution by the Venetians to a very particular problem that they had in their city, but they weren't really trying to generalize the idea of the ghetto or trying to come up with a general solution of what to do with Jews. But when Pope Paul in 1555, having seen what had gone on in Venice, decided to take the population of Jews of Rome, which had been there for centuries and had been citizens of Rome, and decided to segregate them, to move them from the Trastevere to the other side of the Tiber in a space that would be overflowing with water on a regular basis. When he made that move and then ultimately wrote about it in papal bulls that circulated around the world, that was when the ghetto itself became a cognitive category. And it became an idea about not only how to segregate Jews, but about segregation in general as well. The early modern ghetto was a ghetto that had certain basic characteristics. And these were really the characteristics that were associated with the ghetto for most of its history. First of all, the ghetto was protective. It was, in some sense, protective of the Jews, and it was also protective of the wider society. The principle of discrimination that led people into the ghetto was belief, religion. If you changed your religion, if you converted, you could actually leave. And there were Jews who did convert, not that many of them, but some did, and some were able to move to other areas as a result of no longer having that belief system. The kind of segregation was porous. They could go in and out during the course of the day. They could do business outside of the ghetto. They could have friendships outside of the ghetto, as long as they were in by the time that the gates closed at night. And the form of, of, the, of economic activity was really one in which there was interdependence between the ghetto and the wider society. People would come into the ghetto during the course of the day to do business. Jews would leave the ghetto to do business, and they would have business relationships that often led to friendships. The physical space was characterized by overcrowding, and this has been a characteristic of many ghettos in history. I sometimes refer to the ghetto as a differentiating machine. In other words, a place that really takes people who are just a little bit different or somewhat different, and then by virtue of segregating them, turns them into people that are even more different. And then, once they are more different, that difference becomes a further rationalization for keeping them separate, and they become more and more exotic over time. And the Roman ghetto had the characteristic of a differentiating machine but it was a differentiating machine that existed over centuries, and it actually took that long for the Jews to become wholly different from the rest of society. The ghetto, finally, for the early modern era, was essentially a way of life. It wasn't simply um, a short-term thing that 
the Jews were put into. It was a place in which the principle, was discri- the principle of discrimination were, was belief, but they were able to maintain a way of life based on those beliefs. And their life in many ways during this period could semi-flourish. Their intellectual life could flourish, their family life could flourish. And so it was a mixed bag for the Jews in many ways. It was, they were degraded by their segregation, but their life was ongoing. And this is really the way that the ghetto was understood by many people up through the age of emancipation when the Jews were liberated, essentially, from the ghettos by Napoleon. I want to move next into the question of how did this idea from Jewish history become a part of social science? How did it become an idea that academics and scholars and writers would use to try to understand the social situation of segregated people? And in order to understand that, you have to move to the University of Chicago in the 1920s, where a young scholar, an emigre from Germany, wrote a book that was based on his doctoral dissertation at the University of Chicago called The Ghetto. And his name was Louis Wirth. And Wirth basically was writing during a period when sociology was trying to establish itself as a science. And one of the ways that you do that was by developing generalizable concepts, concepts that can be useful in understanding the world beyond the specific place that you are studying, for example. And Wirth said, look, there's this idea from Jewish history, the ghetto, that we can use to understand the lives of other racial and ethnic groups as well. We can use it to understand the Italians. We can use it to understand the Irish, the Chinese, and even the blacks in Chicago can be understood through the lens of this concept. Now, Wirth was writing during this period that we call the Age of Emancipation. Jews were essentially living in a liberated state in cities around the world, in places like the west side of Chicago, um, the lower east side of New York, even Boyle Heights. Jews were living in a manner that was free and, in some sense, by choice. I mean, of course, we know that in, in Los Angeles, there were, during this period, there were restrictive covenants and some of the first restrictive covenants against Jews. But at the same time, there was, this was nothing like the situation that we had seen during the early modern era. And for Worth, in Chicago, which was really his focus, there was a great danger in the way that the Jews, in his view, were self-segregating themselves, and especially the Polish Jews um, and other Eastern European Jews. And he looked back at the Middle Ages, and he told a story of how the ghetto had developed, and he focused in particular on Frankfurt. And he said, the Frankfurt ghetto of the 1400s developed because the Jews of Frankfurt built invisible walls around themselves. And by virtue of doing that, they led to resentment, and then the higher authorities of Frankfurt decided to segregate them. And he tried to use that as a lesson for the Jews of Chicago and other ethnic groups. And he said, don't self-segregate, assimilate. It will, you'll only bring resentment upon yourself if you refuse to assimilate. Actually, Wirth's history of the Frankfurt ghetto was completely wrong. The Jews of, um, of, of Frankfurt were segregated during a time of intense and virulent anti-Semitism. They were segregated because of certain 
rulings and certain edicts that came down from church councils. And they were segregated because the emperor went to Frankfurt and demanded that they be segregated. The people of Frankfurt actually waited a decade before they actually put the segregation into effect. And only under great pressure did they ultimately do so. Had Worth told that story of the segregation of Frankfurt, he would have actually told a story that would have been more useful to later African-American scholars, many of whom were his students, um, who he worked very closely with in, as they tried to understand the emerging ghetto in Chicago. This moment in the study of the ghetto was one in which people like Worth believed that assimilation was the greatest thing and the most important thing for the Jews. But there was another scholar at the exact same moment, writing in 1928, named Salo Barone at Columbia University. And he was the greatest Jewish historian of his time. And he was of the same generation as Worth. And he wrote a 12-page essay called Ghetto and Emancipation. And he made the exact opposite argument. He said, let's not have, two, let's not have a lachrymose conception of Jewish history and Jewish ghettos. Let's understand all of the ways in which Jews flourished during the age of the ghetto. And remember that their family life flourished, their demographic numbers flourished, and there were many benefits to being in the ghetto. So on the eve of the rise of Hitler and the Nazis, there was actually a debate among Jewish intellectuals about whether the ghetto was a good thing or a bad thing. And enter Adolf Hitler. Now, part of what I argue in my book is that we really need to understand the Nazi moment in order to understand how our conception of the ghetto today and um, in, in the subsequent generations after the Holocaust came to be what it was. When Hitler came to power very early in his reign, he talked to a few of his closest friends, and I quote from some of the documents of these conversations in my book, in which he said that the Jews would be placed in ghettos where they would live like wild animals. But other than this little comment that Hitler made, there is really no evidence of any grand plans for ghettos, and nor, according to those historians of the Nazi era, such as Dan Mishman, who has studied the issue very carefully, have there ever been any documents showing any specific plans for how the ghettos would be constructed. Nevertheless, when Catholic authorities came to Hitler and asked him, what are you doing segregating the Jews? In one secret meeting, which I quote from in the book, and the documents from this meeting are in the Vatican archives, Hitler said to the high officials of the Catholic Church, I'm just doing what you guys did for centuries. I'm putting the Jews back into the ghetto. And I'm going to really achieve the goal that you had set for yourselves up until the moment that Napoleon liberated the Jews. And in these documents, there are no answers from the Catholic officials. They say nothing. Um, now, one possibility is that they just left their own, the quotations of what they said out of the documents. Another possibility is that they just believed that, that there was really no precedent for what the kind of so-called ghettos that Hitler was going to create. And 
Jews had been in a state of ghettoization for most of the previous few centuries, and it could have made sense to them that Hitler was putting them back in this way. What's interesting is that ultimately, this logic was accepted by not only the um, Catholic Church, but it was accepted by journalists, it was accepted by people writing for the New York Times who repeated the logic right there in stories, which I quote in the book, including the a quotation that said that Hitler is recreating the ghetto of the Middle Ages on, um, on, on Polish soil. Now, obviously, the difference between a Nazi ghetto and a classic early modern ghetto is a difference of night and day. Hitler's ghettos were not meant to be protective in any way for anyone. They were meant to be destructive. They're not even really protective of the wider society because disease flourished in this, these ghettos and would ultimately get out. The principle of discrimination was, for the first time, race. Now you could not convert to get out of the ghetto. The kind of segregation was sealed. There's no way that you could exit. If you exit, it would usually be to be brought out in columns to do slave labor and then to be brought back after long days. But essentially, anybody who would try to escape to get food or anything else would be shot. The economic basis of the ghetto was rescue by labor. In other words, Jews had to produce enough to support themselves in the ghettos and to support the war effort itself. This physical space was not characterized simply by overcrowding, it was characterized by territorial starvation. You would have sometimes 15 or 20 families living in a single apartment with one bathroom and a set of keys. And the kind of differentiating machine it was, was not as you might have found in the Roman ghetto where the people who looked different appeared as people who were simply, not simply not saved, but damned, but instead were displayed like wild animals. Now the idea that the ghetto was really a recreation of the ghetto of the Middle Ages was not only accepted by the journalists for the New York Times and then after the war by earlier generations, the first generations of historians, but it also got accepted by sociologists as well. And here I'll quote from Louis Wirth, who, in a kind of desperate effort to maintain the generalizability of his concept of the ghetto, wrote in the World Book Encyclopedia the following. This was the 1947 entry on ghetto in the World Book. He had written that entry earlier after his book on the first book on the ghetto in 1928 had appeared. He said, the compulsory ghetto died out as a result of the intellectual and social movements of the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution. But the ghettos were revived by the Nazis in Germany and by the fascists in Italy after 1933. In many parts of Europe under Nazi control, ghettos were reintroduced and remained until the end of World War II. Completely false. However avidly the Catholic Church may have sought to convert Jews, demanding that they be kept in an inferior condition to stress the inferiority of their religion, it basically respected their right to live and observe their own lives. Failing to acknowledge that the Nazi ghetto was an extreme type unlike any other ghetto in history elides the difference between it and the earlier communities in which Jewish life was able to survive and even sometimes flourish. 
It also implies that the Nazi ghetto too was an epoch unto itself. In fact, whereas the early modern ghetto was established as a permanent institution, the Nazi ghetto lasted but a few years and was simply a link in a larger chain of execution that resulted in the death of six million Jews. I want to turn now to the question of how it is that the ghetto, as a concept, as an idea, became black. And became black to the point where today, if I teach a class on the ghetto at Princeton, that the students who come to the class will expect to hear lectures about the hood. And if I try to give lectures about Jewish history for the first few weeks, we'll be ultimately astounded. <laughs> and what I argue in the book is that this transformation occurred specifically because of the Nazi ghettos. It was during the era of the Nazi ghetto that black servicemen were abroad fighting in a war, usually in arduous roles of logistical support, to free the Jews from the concentration camps. And at the exact moment that they were fighting that war, blacks in cities like Chicago and St. Louis and elsewhere across the country were being relegated to overcrowded communities based on restrictive covenants, covenants that basically were put in effect by homeowners in various communities who banded together and said that only people who were Caucasian could live in these communities. And it was during these moments when blacks were being segregated on the basis of notions of racial purity and they were fighting a war against racial purity abroad that they felt a need to highlight the contradiction between American ideals and American behavior. If you do a Google search of all of the books and magazines and newspapers that were published during the period from the beginning of the 1900s through, say, the current moment, what you find is that the word ghetto associated with African Americans has a huge leap around 1945. It's pretty steady starting around, say, sometime even before the 1920s. You see occasional usages of the word in books and magazines associated with African Americans, occasional spaces where they will, somebody writing about an African American or a black ghetto um, will say, you know, we'll make a comparison to the ghetto of Venice or the ghetto, ghetto of Rome, but it's, very, it's not very frequent. In fact, even in W.E.B. Du Bois's early classic, The Philadelphia Negro, he never refers to, which is about the whole Seventh Ward of Philadelphia, um, you know, hundreds of pages about that ward and the life of that ward, um, a, a black community, he never once uses the word ghetto to refer to it. In 1945, all of a sudden you see this huge jump. And what I argue in the book is that because restrictive covenants went into effect in Chicago, just as an example, in the late 20s, around 28 and 29, that if it was due to the fact that the ghetto had suddenly become a forced measure, you would have expected to see the rise sometime in the 20s and the 30s. But the fact that you don't see it until 45 gives me the impression, the strong impression, that it had to do with the Holocaust. Now, you can't really say that African Americans never would have used the word in such large numbers had there not been a Holocaust. But what you can say is that we can't take it for granted that they would have done so, that the word would have ever been associated with African Americans. The first great work of American sociology to make that link 
which was in tune with the times, uh, the way that black intellectuals, the way that journalists, the way that many ordinary blacks were starting to talk about their segregation. The first work to do this was a book written by two extraordinary graduate students at the University of Chicago named St. Clair Drake and Horace Caton. And my book is essentially a study of different intellectuals in different eras who wrote about the ghetto in the context in which they were living. And so the first chapter, um, after my focus on the Nazi ghettos, is looking at the work of Drake and Caton and how it was that they made that link. What were they thinking when they tried to associate the word ghetto with, Afri with blacks, right? They, would even, they had in quotes, black ghetto, because they knew that it was a strange usage for people at the time. Well, there was a very specific meaning that they had for it, and it's very relevant still to the times in which we're living. It's really what the ghetto, black ghetto meant in social science. It was, first of all, it was that the, it was to highlight, it was being used to highlight this contradiction between American ideals um, and um, American actions. They were essentially arguing that blacks were America's Jews. Um, that was essentially what the point was, that it was a matter of moral conscience that, 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 that Americans needed to pay attention to this situation. Second, they were trying to emphasize in their book that black neighborhoods were not differences of, did not have differences of degree from other neighborhoods of the city, but differences of kind. They were the only neighborhoods in the city that actually were segregated by the restrictive covenant itself. And so it wasn't that they were just a continuum on a series of neighborhoods, um, but they were actually a very different kind of neighborhood. Third, they ascribed the ghetto conditions to a vicious cycle of outside repression and inside decay. Fourth, they argued that the separate institutions brought about by the ghetto were inherently inferior to those outside, while still, and this was the complicated part of their book, serving as a source of pride and a rounded life. You see, every time that they talked about the ghetto, they referred to the pathological conditions that were emerging as a consequence of the restrictive covenant but they always counterbalanced that discussion with the discussion of the ways in which the ghetto was, this community was actually flourishing at the same time. And whenever they referred to it as a flourishing community, they called it black metropolis. Fifth, they, they um, show that the life trajectories of ghetto residents were mainly due to the community context in which they live, but they were open to the possibility that some of the results that they were seeing were due to the characteristics of the people who moved there. However, their general view, and this was actually a very important intervention in social science at the time, was that the community context was the major determining factor. Sixth, they emphasized that while the ghetto was crucial to understanding the life chances of Northern blacks, it was not a magic bullet that explained all of the problems of black people. And that's a very different conception of the ghetto than you see in a lot of contemporary frameworks of thinking about ghettoization, where some social scientists argue that if you will just move blacks, poor blacks, out of certain bad neighborhoods and put them into new neighborhoods, then they can all of a sudden um, have these experiments that will show that after 10 years, their problems should be solved. 
Caton and Drake never conceptualized the ghetto in such a way. In fact, they saw employment as a completely separate issue that was crucial to the life chances of African Americans, and they never believed that absent a solution to employment problems for many blacks, that the problems that were faced by the population that was ghettoized would necessarily be solved. In subsequent years, the ghetto would undergo many changes and transformations. And in each era, different intellectuals that I write about in the book in different chapters would focus on those changes and write about what the ghetto meant in that particular historical moment. In the next chapter of the book, I focus on Kenneth Clark, who wrote about the ghetto during a period when it was being transformed, especially in the North, by big housing projects that were being built by the federal government, which then would become instrumental in the next phase of segregation, a topic that is the subject of a new book that has recently come out called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. In the subsequent period that was written about by um, William Julius Wilson, African-Americans who were middle class, who had new opportunities, would leave the ghetto, and the people that would left be, be left behind would be an increasingly poor and isolated population. I want to end by turning back to the question of the Nazi ghettos and the Holocaust, and ask what kind of reference the Holocaust or the Nazi ghettos should be at this moment for people who are trying to understand the ghetto. I mean, one possibility is we could say, look, that was then, this is now, we've got a whole new kind of situation in America today, um, and you know, there's really no, it's, there's, there's certainly no analogy ever to be made between the Nazi ghettos and the black ghettos. That was never the intention of African-American intellectuals and sociologists in the 40s, and there's no reason uh, to make any kind of analogy like that today. But what is the relevance of these Nazi ghettos? And I, I really, I, I wonder about that question, not just for thinking about black ghettos, but also for thinking about Jewish ghettos. For the Jewish ghettos in particular, it seems to me as though the, 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 the issue is this, is that the Nazi ghettos cast such a shadow. They had such a big impact on how the world came to look at Jewish life that when you go back and you look at a country like Poland, for example, and Jewish life in Poland, where there were never any ghettos before, before the Nazis, but when you look back at a country like Poland, essentially what happens is that the Jewish life of a thousand years has been eclipsed by the Holocaust, and by the Nazi ghettos. It seems to me that for the Jews at least, looking back now at the Venice ghetto, looking back at the Rome, looking at the ghetto from the vantage point of the early modern ghetto, which was a balance between degradation and flourishing, we could use a little bit of less focus on Nazi ghettos and Holocaust, and more focus on what went on during that early modern period. And there's a museum that I visited with my students, the Museum for the History of the Polish Jews in Warsaw, which opened in the last few years, which anybody who's interested in understanding that thousand-year history 
of the Jews that was eclipsed by the, what the Nazis did um, is really worth visiting. With regard to the blacks and, the, and how African-Americans might think about um, the ghetto and how we might think about the black ghetto, whether or not we are African-American, it seems to me as though perhaps a recognition of this moment is, um, of this Nazi moment, is, is, is actually more valuable. The Nazi ghetto really is a representation of the most extreme form of control as ever existed for a ghetto. And it was also, in Warsaw, a representation of a level of resistance during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising that was also extreme. And it seems to me that at this moment where the ghetto in the United States is symbolized and understood through the lens of mass incarceration, um, through extreme forms of control, but also through tremendous resistance, as we see in the Black Lives Matter movement and others, it seems to me that at this particular historical moment, an understanding of the particular context in which African-American intellectuals took up the word is more relevant than ever. And I'll end there. Hi, uh, Adam Winkler, uh, terrific talk. Thank you, uh, Professor Denier. Um, uh, I I'm curious, um, why wasn't the, I've never heard the, the term ghetto used for um, uh, say, Asian communities uh, when I was growing up, even though there was a level of segregation there. We don't hear it often used necessarily with Latino communities necessarily. Um, uh, so I'm curious, even though sometimes it seems many of these are the, sort of the same kind of racial markers, uh, same kind of segregation, why don't we, why, why was the term ghetto not used or is it not used for those communities? Yeah, that's a very important question. Um, I actually, in writing this book thought a lot about the application of the term to other communities and asked myself why it was that certain communities may or may not have taken it up. And in the case of, of the Chinese, just as a very specific example, one of the interesting things is that the Chinese were really the very first racial group in the United States to be segregated with restrictive covenants. Um, and it happened long before Jews and, um, and, and blacks were segregated. But it really, by the time that they, by the time that the, that, that the word started to get used by African Americans, these neighborhoods were already known as Chinatowns. Um, and then the word got taken up by African Americans and it was really past the point where um, Asians would actually t take it up. Now, during the 1960s, there were some Asian-American intellectuals that actually argued for the use of the term. And then there were others who actually didn't want to be associated themselves with the black experience. Um, and some were inspired by the civil rights movement, and others were not. And in the end, it never caught on. Latinos always used barrio, um, and for a barrio, that had a mixed caste, it was a, a, a neighborhood of pride um, and flourishing and also uh, a neighborhood of constraint and exploitation as well. And 
that they had their own complicated history with, with that term. And so each ethnic group, it seems, has had its own particular response to the word. Um, and it really ultimately in the United States has mainly been associated with blacks, although some other groups have taken it up. Do you have thoughts about kind of the future of get the ghetto? There are a couple of, of issues, it seems, that strike me immediately. The first is that increasingly in this country, it seems as though economic segregation is becoming what racial segregation was in the past. Um, and so if we are going to use the word loosely, then we'll probably be using it more in those particular terms. I don't personally necessarily like to use it loosely because I feel as though there's a great value in understanding its connections to the history um, and particularly to the racial history of this, of this country. Um, but it also seems to me that if we were to ever try to do away with them in the future, that uh, as one of my colleagues, Douglas Massey, has shown, one of the things we would have to sp spend a lot of time thinking about is um, zoning ordinances which um, in many suburbs make density very difficult uh, to achieve. So those would be my two. It's a pleasure to be a Princeton student for a couple of hours, uh, a lot of fun. Um, I had a sense that we were maybe walking gingerly around the question about the pre-Nazi ghetto that was perhaps the salvation for Jews, in other words, it enabled the rabbis to supervise what was going on by having everybody back at night. It limited uh, miscegenation, in a sense. Uh, and the elimination of that ghetto is part of the deterioration of the strength of the Jewish tradition in some people's eyes. Is, I, I don't know if you want to take a position on that, or is it? Yeah, I mean, so I guess I... Uh think that Celo Baron, in his, ghetto, in his essay, um, Ghetto and Emancipation, painted a too rosy picture of the Middle Ages and the early modern ghetto. That's my view. Um, but I still think that there is some element of truth to that, and it is pretty eerie to think about what happened to the Jews right after he wrote that, that essay. And I struggle with that. Um, Hi, thank you. My name's Ann White. Um, have has what you learned about the history of the ghettos helped us reflect upon the most recent kind of studies of ghettos in social science? Yeah, that's a very important question. Um, so I, I, had, I alluded earlier to the fact that there are these experiments that have been done um, over the course of the last um, couple of decades. These are experiments that social scientists do in which they essentially move people out of ghettos and then they try to see how they do when they're moved into better neighborhoods. Um, and one of these studies is called the Moving to Opportunity Experiment. And what I'm gonna say uh, is gonna sort of imply some criticism, so I just wanna say that these are really extraordinary social scientists who have devoted large up, up, um, amounts of their, uh, of their work life to trying to understand what it is about neighborhoods that makes them detrimental um, for pe to people. And, but one of the unfortunate things about these experiments has been that the timeline for judging the results has been very short. So 
after just a few years, people are moved out and then they actually test them and they would, there would be newspaper articles, which I quote from actually in my book, in which they would show that the results were minimal. And what I think one of the important lessons of the history of the Jewish ghettos is how long it took after the Jews left the ghetto for those effects of ghettoization um, to disappear. By the time that the Jews, by the way, had been segregated for centuries, the kind of flourishing that I've talked about had basically disappeared, especially in Rome, um, when they no longer had access to um, being bankers and having the kind of economic activity that they had started out with centuries before. But it took a long time for the Jews to be able to integrate and to be able to cast off many of the disadvantages that came from ghettoization. It took generations. And you know, to look at some of these studies today, uh, which kind of assume that people should be able to make these changes and transformations in a few years, it strikes me as one of those examples where reading history is beneficial. My name is Luke Campbell. I just have a quick question. Is there a hindrance or a solution to African-Americans to link the ghetto to the Jewish historical ghetto? Is it a hindrance or is it a, a strength for them to link it? Well, my basic view is this, is that I think that the, if they understand that the Jewish ghetto was a ghetto that represents the endpoints of certain kinds of experiences, flourishing on the one hand at one extreme, resistance, extreme control on the others. If it enables people to have a wider conception of what a ghetto is and has been historically than simply being about housing inequality and segregation, then I think that it could be a benefit to understand that history. My name is Bill Sias, and I'm struggling with the following model. You've described the ghetto <coughs> in um, medieval periods and how that arose in a unique community. You described the modern ghetto as arriving, uh, developing in the context of the evolution of the nation state and how that's had implications. And so now I'm struggling with the following thought. <coughs> our societies are evolving. Our nation states are evolving. All these traditional boundaries and communities that we've, that we've recognized are changing. Is the concept of ghetto, can it be more generalized do you see it being more generalized so that at some point in the distant future we would describe a nation state as having been ghettoized as a result of the way in which we collectively as a population on this planet allocate resources, power, and distribute what we have amongst ourselves and in the same way as in the past refuse that distribution and withhold it from people? It could be, it's possible. Yeah. 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 Okay. Just ask. Yeah. Your explanation of needing to look at World War II and Nazism and the ghetto in that context in order to gain some leverage and understanding, and it sounded like some empathy for black people in this country and ghettoization. Isn't the plantation a place to start there as well? Why? Is that why, is, why do we have to go to Germany in that understanding and context and not simply look 
here in this context, in this country, and the plantation in particular. The thing that I was trying to explain was the particular historical moment of the ghetto and how it was that African-American intellectuals came to take up the, the word at that moment. That's why I felt the need to go to that moment. Okay. Hi, my name is Susan Abraham. By the way, I'm Jewish and grew up on Long Island too, so I can relate <laughs> in around the time, uh, same time frame. So I'm just wondering, in recent years, um, I've heard more of the term, and you mentioned it once, the hood, and not ghetto so much used with African-Americans. And I'm just wondering if it's more than just a word difference or if it's a whole reflects a whole different attitude and what the connotation is, both um, if you've looked into that and what the different meaning is. Yeah, I'm going to have to leave that to another generation to <laughs> expand on. Okay, that is all the time we have tonight. Before we end, on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I'd like to thank our friends at MOCA for hosting us tonight. I'd also like to thank all of you for joining us, and we are thrilled to be able to give everyone in the room a copy of Mitch Jr.'s fantastic book. Okay. Thank you very much. We hope, um, we hope that all of you enjoy it and find as much meaning in it as we did and our book prize judges did. And we also invite all of you to please stick around to continue the conversation with us um, at the reception just upstairs in the lobby. And of course, let's give a big hand to Mitch Jr. Thank you. Thank you.